The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman from The Homes Report, and we're very happy to welcome Sally Costerton back onto the podcast. Hello, Sally. Hello, Arun. How have you been? Uh, well, today I'm very cold, but uh, busy start. Busy yeah. start to the new year. It's freezing. Um, so you you were just telling me you were in the US last week yeah. um, on the West Coast. Yes. And it was a quiet news week in the US. <laughs> so. Very quiet. Yeah. Positively sleepy. Yeah. So not much happened, but there was a new president was inaugurated. How was that? How did that go down in, in on the West Coast, wherever you were? Well, I was I was in, in Los Angeles and, and I was at a couple of meetings with a mixture of people who were both from the West Coast, but also from D.C. And um, honestly, it was it was like a wake. Mm. I, I mean, that I, that feels very melodramatic saying it, but it, it really was like that. I mean, people were kind of sad, depressed, worried. D.C. is a Democrat town fine. LA is also a Democrat town, not as much as DC. So this is not necessarily representative of all Americans. But it was, um, yeah, they were worried and depressed. And it was also taxi drivers and people in restaurants, just not knowing what's coming next, I think. Mm. That was a very um, common uh, sort of commentary. Yeah, it's, um, I guess, a lot of uncertainty around. um, but you know, huge crowds as we established, um, a huge, <laughs> enormous, yeah, the biggest, biggest ever. And uh, of course, the weekend brought us uh, more, more interesting news: uh, the, the the theory of alternative facts, as uh, mm. as, as as set forth by the new White House press secretary, Sean Spicer. Uh, alternative facts, uh, some, sometimes referred to as falsehoods or lies. Um, but, you know, alternative facts. Much better spin, I yes, feel. Yes, yes. It's uh, good repackaging. Yeah, good branding. Um, surely this is, a, this is a, an opportunity for the enterprising, enterprising PR people to, um, to, to start using alternative facts when they're arguing their case rather than relying on the truth, Sally. <laughs> well, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a sort of deeply worrying development. Oh. Um, for, for 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 a number of reasons, not least of which is whether one can even stop it. You know whether it is in fact now just a fact of life that that we are going to move into an era, or we're already in an era, where the truth doesn't simply speak for itself, mm. and that there are different versions of the truth. Um, and I I would like that not to be true, if you'll pardon the pun, but I fear that it may be too late. I fear that may in fact be you know, rather sort of old-fashioned perspective. I think for, for, for PR people, it, it's a real moment to take stock. I mean, we, we, we cannot just assume that this is sort of somebody else's business and somebody else's problem and stupid people are the cause of this and they just don't understand and they don't read the right newspapers. And, that the, you know, this sort of thing is just not the right. We have to be very honest and listen and say, look, things, something's changed mm. and we have to change. Um, it is both a response. I think it's quite exciting at one level. I was thinking about before I came to see you how much change there's been in the PR industry in the last 10 years, even the last five years in the digital space, how much of a shift there's been towards digital storytelling, 
um, branded storytelling. Uh, and that, that it's been an enormous growth area in our industry, an enormous expansion of our skill, if you like. And to and very successfully, it's, it's helped brands to engage with their, their stakeholders um, and not simply rely on the, the media relations lever as being the only one they pull. And we're going to have to do far more of that. But the good news is that we do know how to now. So the idea of appealing to people's emotional needs, um, making it relevant, making it fun, making it digestible and seductive is something I think we know how to do much better than we ever have before. Mm. To me, as communicators, the link or the shift, the mental shift, is is pushing that thinking right into our corporate storytelling, into our traditional sort of much more left-brain type of communications. I think we've done a very good job of doing it on the consumer side, but there's still a, a kernel of communications that tends to come out of the CEO's office that comes out to the sort of Wall Street political audiences where people say, no, this is this is serious. Mm-hmm. We can't mm-hmm. just do this on Facebook. You know, this has to be done with the FT or, you know, this kind of thing. I think we're going to need to make that shift. I think we're going to have to recognize that it now applies to everything. Mm. Um, the one thing you, you would say, though, is that most most public relations people will try and adhere to... Um, to the truth in one form or another. And, and you know, they, they'll obviously argue their client's case, but there are agreed facts underpinning it. Um, but now we have this notion that actually the facts are not agreed and that there are differing facts depending mm. on your point of view. Um, there's a risk, I would have thought, that, you know, unscrupulous operators and, and companies, in, in particularly in controversial industries, could argue that, you know, I don't know, there, there is no oil spill and that those ice caps are not melting and we know we didn't cut down those trees. Yes, I think that is a risk. Um, but I think that what I think Simon, Simon Jenkins said this morning in an article he wrote about fake news, that, that social media has given us the problem, but it has also given us the tools to, to, for the solution. And I would agree with that. I think we, we've never be, had access to more instant response mechanisms. We don't need, as communications people, to be intermediated unless we choose to. Mm-hmm. Um and that was not true before social media came along. You know, if you wanted to communicate, you had to go through the media. And if a journalist didn't want to write your story, you really struggled mm. to have an outlet for it, however true it was. Now I think we have just as much of a power of rebuttal. And, and we need to fight facts of facts. You know, we need to, we can't let things lie. And again, we know how to do this. I mean, crisis practitioners have always done this. But again, I think we're going to have to become much more integrated in our thinking and recognize this is not just going to be when things go wrong, but this is a daily reality of having that listening devices out there to make sure that the truth is your truth and the, what the, the truth you believe in and can defend is, is, really, is really being supported effectively because you can't take it for granted. I agree with you. Mm. Um, that... that Ability to bypass media. I mean, yes, of course, it's been very useful for for companies to to not have to concern themselves with those um, sometimes uncomfortable questions. Um, but you know, there's a broader societal issue here. The media is supposed to play a watchdog role, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, across public and private sector. If they're not able to do that, um, then surely that's a risk yeah. as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I. 
it may be a generational thing, but for me anyway, and I think for many people, for example, we now will, my Twitter feed has a lot of journalists in it. Mm. And for many comms people, that is their, their go-to place. Mm-hmm. They're, they're watching news roll, often reported by journalists who work for well-known media brands all over the world. And the part of the reason they follow them is because they work for those brands. So even though they're using social media to share their news, they're, they're coming to you as a consumer, as a reader, with that trust built in. Mm. And so I, I think there is going to have to be some shifting recognizing that platforms are becoming are different and mechanisms are going to have changed probably forever. But I would still, if I believe in the uh, the brand of the FT, I believe what they, I still believe what they write. I believe that to be true. And if I, if I would question it, then I will look to them to convince me of their fact-checking processes, mm. of the efforts that they're putting in to make sure that they will not share something with me unless they are confident. I mean, the, 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 the BuzzFeed question about our new president, you know, who mm-hmm. should share that story when it broke? There were multiple journalists talking about why they hadn't done that. Yeah. Because they felt they couldn't check it. Yeah, absolutely. And media are going to have to be much more confident at that kind of stance to say, here's what we know, but here's what we don't know. Yeah. And the final thing I'd say about it is traditional media have the resources to fact check in a way that most other organizations don't they have more resources they have more I mean, resources it's, it's not what it once was though right absolutely but it's it's better than the alternative mm. and those media brands have an opportunity the bbc you know the the, the cnn i mean the, 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 is it john king in mm-hmm. in the u.s mm-hmm. who talks about this a lot oh, he's speaking at our um conference is he he's Chicago. the guy isn't he that um yeah talks about this issue mm. and is trying to educate yeah he is he's trying to take on this whole fake yeah, news yeah yeah and i think you know he, he talks a lot of sense about the responsibilities of big media owners yeah. to step up yeah. you know that they're, they're proving of the truth if you will because yeah. they have the resources to do it and yet does it matter though because you know you have president trump in a tweet um calling out cnn as fake news and mm. there's going to just be tens of millions of people who will believe that rather than anything CNN does to prove the veracity of its information. Yeah, I hope you're wrong. I mean... I wish I was. uh, Yes, I know. (laughs) I think there is a a kind of new trusting... The the, the Trump effect is, to my mind, is unproven at the moment. Mm. I I couldn't profess to understand why so many people voted for Trump. I mean, I don't know. Mm. And I don't think many people know yet. No, lots of people have uh, this is the thing i saw last week in davos everyone's got an explanation mm. but it's kind of like well where were you a year ago, a year ago? Yeah, exactly no none of us saw it coming no apart from my taxi driver who saw brexit coming well a lot of taxi drivers <laughs> yeah but, i but think made it happen but anyway maybe yeah. they did but but I, I think that the i think that is a real genuine unknown you know why is trump why did Trump manage to? Well, he, he only narrowly got elected. I mean, you know, right. it wasn't it wasn't like you know. Yeah, but if it, it hadn't was, been for all those illegals, it would have would have been a landslide. So I think. If I suppose it's like anything, you know, we go to hear what we what reflects what we already believe, mm. and if people want to believe Donald Trump over CNN, then I guess they're going to. Mm-hmm. I so find it hard to believe that many people in the long term truly would take that route. Yeah, it it strikes me that he's a symptom in a way. The, the issue is the fact that there are so many people out there yeah. that are willing to believe um, yeah. 
uh, news that maybe is not verifiable. And I guess that's the issue, really, rather than yeah. looking at, say, Trump or Brexit or any of these yeah, things. Yeah, it is. It's figuring out, well, why, how did we get to this point? Um, and what do we do? And, you know, it seems like certainly this whole idea about alternative facts is, uh, it's, it's just, yeah, it's almost like there's different realities depending on what you believe. Well, there's certainly evidence to support that, yes. And I do think there is, there will be pressure placed, I hope there is pressure placed on the big internet companies who mm. are providing the, who are really providing the main environment in which fake news is taking root. It is primarily taking root in social media. Mm-hmm. And it is, I think, very important for the long-term brands, actually, of Google and Facebook and you know what, what's and so forth. Other social media platforms. In the end, I don't think they can just trust take that trust for granted, mm. because it only it's like any other brand. It's only going to take four or five times, or even once, when it it becomes obvious that something terrible has happened, mm-hmm. because they have not bothered to to pay attention to their validity of their newsfeed. Mm. Their brand is as vulnerable as anyone else's. Yeah. And I think the comms people in those organisations, I'm sure, are very cognizant that they are. Perhaps they didn't want it. Perhaps they did want it. It's quite commercially successful mm. for them. That with that commercial success comes responsibility, yeah, and maybe one think... day regulation. Yeah. Not yet. Oh, but, you know. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I'm. Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm not a fan at all of, of regulating the media. Um, but yes, this idea that they're just a neutral platform and they're not responsible mm. when you know their algorithm is is directly responsible. For, yeah, for what you see. And, yeah. and, and it doesn't know what is... The, how does the Facebook algorithm decide what is the truth? The problem yeah. is it can't. Yeah. So or it doesn't they, seem to be able to. Yeah. So they, they should... They do shoulder some responsibility. Um, a bit of a... A bit of a tough time as well for the pollsters, I think. You know, there's this whole question around predictive analytics or, you know, research methods. I mean, are you seeing those questions... Being asked in 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 the in in the private sector as well within you know within corporations. Yes, yes. I think it's it's a it's been another massive wake up call mm. for another area that we had all assumed had become effectively a sort of very <laughs> reliable science. Yeah, yeah, perfect. A sort of very reliable science. Um, and I think that is very challenging for businesses and organisations who who still need to look into the future, still need to understand, um, you know, what investments they should make, what decisions they should make. Mm. And, you know, George Osborne didn't help when he said, oh, you know, we're all fed up with experts. And, that was Michael Gove. I'm so sorry. I'm I not one to George. defend George Osborne. No, but I it was Michael Gove, you're yeah. correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fake, no, that's just that's just a mistake. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, it sort of came horribly true, didn't it? And, and, mm. I, and yeah. I, I, th- my, I was talking to somebody last weekend who, who worked on the Remain campaign and he was saying that there was some evidence that the people who were voting for Brexit either made their minds up three years ago, mm. three years before or three weeks before mm-hmm. and these people are very, very difficult for pollsters to reach. Right. Um, somebody's going to make up their mind more or less on a whim. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to reach them with a leaflet you know. Or a three-year campaign. Or a three-year campaign. Mm. So some of the 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 inaccurate predictions are probably to do with the nature of the subjects at hand, and mm-hmm. they're very unusual. Um, but I have to say, you know, I think 
people on these two topics anyway, and many, many people clearly didn't want to say what they really felt for okay. whatever reason. Yeah. And maybe that will be true with other issues, but maybe it won't. Mm -hmm. it, it, we may have had a coincidence of two huge, highly emotive, sort of life-changing choices, one in the US and one in the Europe, mm. in the UK. But people are turning into an automatic assumption that all pollsters are rubbish. Mm. I, I, if you look at the two in particular, there are good reasons to see why people might not have wanted to share their, their views. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, people who felt that they didn't want to stay in Europe were often very worried that they would be branded a, Euro a racist mm. if they said that. Mm -hmm. And that has to be part of the explanation as all these people suddenly came out saying, yeah, well, actually, once it was OK to say, yes, I voted for Brexit, suddenly they all came out of the woodwork. Mm. Yeah, I mean, maybe they should ask taxi drivers. Maybe they should <laughs> ask taxi drivers. But I, I do think that there, that has to be mm. a, a, a rebuilding of confidence in pollsters, not just in political pollsters, but in... Well researchers and, 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 and looking to experts, whatever mm -hmm. whatever Gove says, to help us. Because we also have new threats and we need people to help us to understand how to navigate those. Yeah. We, you know, we don't know. Now, corporations and business, I think this came off at Davos, are having to think about political, thinking about national politics and the effect it will have on their business in developed economies in a way they haven't done for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Somebody's got to do that. Yeah, and it, some of them are taking more of a political stance than they once were because, you know, they have they have workforces. I mean, I think that the, the eBay CEO, for example, um, has come out and publicly said, you know, we're committed to our values of uh, free movement of people and of goods. You know, he felt compelled to say it in the wake of, uh, of the new president's inauguration. So... Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're counselling uh, business leaders, mm. are you going to tell them to, to, that there's value in being in sticking their heads above the parapet, or should they just be hiding for a little bit? Well, you know, absolutely instinctively, I would say you should say what you believe in, and you should stick to it, and you should be confident in that, because in the end, I think that is what stakeholders want. Mm. And I cannot believe that, however bumpy the periods of we're all suffering from a bit of a confidence drain at the moment aren't we what this mm. is really what we're dealing with is all these certainties suddenly feel less certain mm. and that makes everybody feel less confident yeah but but at times like that businesses that actually demonstrate confidence i think will get you know will will get benefit you would think so i, I guess there, so. there's there's nervousness i mean the and, and you see this most obviously with the trump tweet Right. You know, a tweet from yeah. President Trump, one of the top topics of conversation last week when I was talking to comms directors and, and CEOs in, in, in Davos was, how do you respond to the early morning tweet from President Trump criticizing your company for something which may not even be true? Because mm. obviously these are often alternative facts. Um, so how do you respond? Do you stick with your strategy and your values that you've had in place for, for years now? Or do you, as we've seen in some cases, mm. uh, suddenly announce that um, you're going to uh, ship jobs back from Mexico to the US? And, 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 and do you change tech? Because, you know, you might get a boycott if, if you're not careful. Yes, it's really unprecedented territory, or at least in my working career. This yeah. is an unprecedented sort of set of choices. And I think it's very difficult to 
to, to sort of uh, proffer generalities, what, what I would say is going back to my point about, you know, needing experts. I think it's it is key for certainly for global brands or brands that are playing in the American economic space. You, they're going to have to build relationships in D.C. They're mm. going to have to. And one of the, the things that people are struggling with at the moment in the U.S. is that the, the how can I put this diplomatically? You know, the sort of establishment isn't used to dealing with, well, nobody mm. is used to dealing with the Trump administration yeah. because it's a completely new phenomenon. It's unpredictable. It's, 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 it's unprecedented. It's full of people that mm. have never been there before. Mm. So there's no muscle memory mm-hmm. in D.C. Whereas here in the U.K., I think we, I mean, I've lost count of the number of times that I've had to explain to, to my American colleagues and friends that Yes Minister is, in fact, a documentary. <laughs> And this is why we are all okay, mm. <laughs> because, you know, British leaders are only given relatively small amounts of power. Yeah. And and in the end, we keep a, a sort of steady state, mm-hmm. um, strong institutional memory about how to how to make things happen and keep people calm, even facing something like Brexit, mm-hmm. which for us is unprecedented. Yeah. And we you know that we're struggling with it, but we don't feel really frightened of it. But that fear, I think, comes from all the unknowns coming together at once. So the conventional consultancy firms and relationship managers in DC who would normally close ranks at this point with a transition to a new uh, administration mm-hmm. are not there. I mean, I can tell you, I know from first hand, you know, that in DC people are saying, well, we don't even know who's going to run some of these departments. Mm-hmm. You meet senior, what we would call civil servants, who are career experts who are going saying, well, we don't even know if we're going to have the same portfolio. Mm. Now, that will change quickly, probably. Mm-hmm. But brands need to recognize that they're going to have to find a way through to build relationships in D.C. Mm-hmm. And then when they that's how they're going to get the balance to sort of make some of the decisions that you're saying. Well, when you get the early morning tweet, mm. you, you, need you, some you have to know what your long term strategic. Context. Yes. Yeah choices mm. are and that doesn't get done through twitter no you know but what's your i mean are, are you how how worried is business about these these tweets you know are they setting up teams to monitor yeah. how early morning they are oh i think people definitely are monitoring and i think they should mm. um and not just trump but as i said earlier i think generally if yeah. we are now monitoring what people are saying about us and people are putting out alternative facts or lies as we would call them mm. um we're going to have to do a lot 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 more listening online Mm. Mm -hmm. and I think definitely if you think you're in the crosshairs of of a new Republican administration Trump administration and you're a bigger US company that's going to be a very important priority for you Mm. how you respond is at the moment with so much unknown about who's going to fill up the roles in the administration how to build relationships and partnerships there's going to be a period two three four months I don't know Mm -hmm. when it's going to be very hard yeah. Because it, the foundation is kind of not there mm-hmm. to build decisions on. And I, I think it's very difficult to go and advise boards and say, well, you know, the answer is B. When actually stuff is coming out of the White House on a daily basis that absolutely nobody, including a lot of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. would ever have expected. Mm. Yeah. So we have to be careful not to, provo- pr- to, to try and promote too much, in a way, false confidence mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think it's as, you know is not as predictable as it has been. And and for many companies, 
they, you know, companies make a, a virtue of the values that they have. You know, you see these corporate value statements were all mm-hmm. about inclusiveness and diversity and this and that. But but now those values carry a bit more of a, a risk to them, I, I would suggest. And so how do you think that's going to play out? I mean, are they going to stand by these values when they're actually tested? Um, will they, oh, is it time to rewrite some of them? Or, I mean, how... how I, I mean, I suppose this comes back to the idea of how, how worthwhile are corporate values in the first place. Yes, gosh, big question. I, I think, I mean, I've involved over my career many times and, you know, being in sessions and running sessions and having lots of discussions about values and mission and purpose. And I think they're important mm. insofar as they reflect what really happens in an organisation. That's something I've really learned. Mm. That, that they're only as good as what the employees and the customers and other stakeholders actually believe is Mm. true. Right. Um, And any amount of pretty packaging and, you know, nice material, it doesn't change what people really feel is their experience. That boils down to the leadership of an organisation. So the the degree to which an organisation has positive values comes down almost entirely to the quality of its leadership. Mm. And... Leadership is going. Is it, this is when it will be tested, because we can all lead organisations when everything's going our way. Mm-hmm. It's when you have to make very tough choices and you have to take risks, and usually you have to trade one set of shareholders off, stakeholders off against another. Mm-hmm. In this case, you know, financial against employee, or however you want to put it. And I think this is going to be very troubling for boards and. Organizations, boards of large organizations and small organizations. And all I can say to them is think really long and hard about what really matters to you. Mm. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but with the exception of a a few, many business leaders and and, and businesses in general, they don't really like to be out there in the spotlight. It's, (laughs) it's It's not necessarily the most comfortable place to be. We see some CEOs are much better than it. Than other, at it than others. I think, you know, Howard Schultz and Paul Polman and maybe Indra Nui from, from PepsiCo and a few others. Um, but by and large, you could probably count them on maybe two hands. Um, that's got to change as well, presumably. Yes, I think it comes with, you know, if you are going to run an organisation through the next two or three years, you know, this is going to be very testing time for organisational leaders. There really, it really is. I don't think there's any way it isn't going to be. Mm-hmm. And that they will need to think very carefully about the, their absolute priorities and who is most important to them. Mm-hmm. And those are the people they have to spend the most time with. And that isn't telling your story well in a public space may be a very important part of that. But it might not be. It depends what kind of organisation you're running. But I do think thinking very deliberately and very carefully and with the consensus of the management team and the board, I mean, you see big management changes, for example, at places like the BBC, which will be very interesting to see how that plays out, not just a new, a whole new way of thinking um, and how the management team there may have different choices in the future. There has to be some agreements and consensus as to, you know, what are we going to defend? What are we going to stand up for? And in a way, what is tradable? Because mm-hmm. no organisation is ever... You're not going to have everything. And 
in my experience with rising leaders, that bit is very difficult. If you say to people, well, what are you prepared to give up on? Hmm. And because they'll, they'll always tell you they want they want it all. Mm. And they want you, if you're a comms person, they want you to either make it to go away if the it is something that is problematic. Mm-hmm. Or they want you to explain to everybody why they've they've cracked it. Mm-hmm. You know, they found the perfect balance. Mm-hmm. But stakeholders know that's not true. Because it never is. Yeah. So, so that level of honesty, being able to say, I mean, I, I admire, for example, Michael O'Leary in this in this sense, because mm. I think he has been very, in this sense, <laughs> I think he has been very honest. Yeah, he has. And yeah. he is he is fair. He is good at saying, here's what we're not going to do. Yeah. Even if people want us to. Yeah. The way that I think they implement those policies leaves something to be <sighs> desired. Um, I agree. But as from a pure comms perspective, right, should you stand up and defend yeah. your organisation strategy, and should you recognise, should you be tough mm-hmm. when people tell you that they don't agree with you? Yes, I think you should. Mm. Leadership, of course, is also about leading implementation mm. in a way that is that, that people feel is authentic and is real, and they want to, you know, they want to say with it. I think it's going to be a tough time for those leaders in Davos. Perhaps that's why they were depressed. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, they they were. I think they're shocked because, you know, the events of the last year really are a, a fairly dramatic rebuttal of the, of the kind of, the Davos liberal economic elite order, uh, all of which are now pejorative words <laughs> in this new era. Yeah, so I think they were, there was a certain amount of shock, but at the same time, I don't think they're too unhappy. You know, they're still in the super, super elite. Uh, businesses are making record profits. We're seeing good earnings. The stock market is, I think, has it broken the 20,000? Yeah, they did today. They the did, Dow did. Right? Yeah. Mm. So there you go. And uh, and we're about to see taxes slashed. So, <laughs> I mean, all the hand-wringing, I don't know. Do, do they do they protest too much, I feel? Um, the... the uh, I'm being a bit cynical. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> Surely not. Yeah, but you know, and I, I, I accept the best CEOs think of a lot more than just profit um, and the financial performance of their companies. But I suspect most CEOs don't, and so I just wonder if all of the uh, the hand wringing at Davos and the uh, the concern about inequality and inclusion and populism. Is, is just at Davos? Well, some of it's definitely driven from personal interest. I mean, I, I mm. uh, was in a meeting the other day with somebody who, even more cynical than you, who, wow. sa- who was saying, you know, I think the only reason that big business or whatever expression you want to call the Davos elite are worried about Brexit is because they want to be able to have completely ability to live where they want, travel where they want, send their kids to school in New York and you know, have their holiday homes here. And this sort of idea, it's all about profit and success and being part of an elite and they feel threatened by that. I think that's too cynical. You know, I mean, I, I think there is an element of that being a populist narrative and that yeah. this is what Trump is railing against these sorts of, yeah, you know. Yeah, because ultimately nothing, none of that will change. <laughs> well, <laughs> A, I agree with you. I think that's an example of kind of fake yeah. reality. Yeah, right. I, and I know it's convenient for Trump to say, oh, you know, all these terrible people in Washington, we're going to get rid of all of them. And then, yeah. you know, in reality, it's, it's not going to be like that. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, yes, I think they do protest too much. 
I, I, I would like to see that energy put into a really serious discussion, as I say, about leadership and about the, the relationship between leadership communications, mm -hmm. um, whether you're an in-house team or an agency team, really moving forward and saying, okay, what are we, how do we make sure that we are going to be able to do our best to protect the, the, our businesses and our stakeholders? We're going to have to make choices. Mm. How are we going to be more honest about what those choices are? Yeah. And how do we get other stakeholders in an organization who may be very against that on side? Yeah, there's very, there was very little talk about that, I yeah. must say. There was a lot of fairly lofty uh, discussions about how business has got to become more inclusive, so forth, but very little detail about how it happened, very little consideration of, of even differing points of view amongst your own employees, for example, mm -hmm. much less amongst different priorities across all stakeholders. This kind of populism we're seeing, I mean, that, it has implications for brands as well, presumably, right? If business is seen as as an avatar for privilege. Yes, definitely. Um, and I think that is part of the, 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 I'm going to put it under Trump, but it isn't just Trump, but this idea that, you know, you've been left out, you've been excluded. Mm. It's because these people in the global elite don't want you to have what they have. I mean, mm -hmm. this is all about that. You know, if you if you listen to Trump's inaugural address, the way somebody said in the, in the media today, the way he described the US, he could have been talking about Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, this sort of rust-filled factories and, yeah. you know, this sort of devastated this country. Dystopian Yeah, a dystopian vision, vision yeah. where just basically, but it was okay because he was coming along to rescue them and it yeah. would all be fine. He would make America great again. Um, and I think if if big if large brands and businesses allow themselves to be caught up in that narrative, that is extremely dangerous. Right. Very very dangerous. Why is that? Because it is toxic. Yeah. It, it's and it appears to be catching. Yeah. You were talking earlier on about well, why so many people believing this stuff? Yeah. Well, we don't really know, but we know that they are. Yeah. Or they at least at it the resonates. Moment, it resonates somewhere. Mm. So. As brands think about their own communication, I think they have to be extremely clear about what they're doing with their organizations, with their customers, with their stakeholders, and that they have to stand on their own strengths. Mm. And they've always had to. But I don't think big brands would have been in competition with their own governments in the past for that kind of yeah. who's on the side of the good. And it's not helped by the fact that many, particularly the tech businesses in, in Silicon Valley, which I spent quite a lot of time with, as you know, yeah. I mean, how are that has been a sort of champion of the whatever you want to call liberal elite? Oh yeah. I mean, now, they, how they, are they, they going to engage in in Washington yeah, with yeah. this new reality? Well, they've been very vocal about the the, the view from Silicon Valley. Uh, maybe I'm generalizing a little bit, but but there has always been this view that government can't fix anything. Yes. And only Silicon Valley can. Yes. Right. And you know, even quite extreme views. I think I'm not entirely sure who which which one of the sort of Silicon um, value superstars it is but has suggested that you know silicon valley should become its own uh, its own jurisdiction its own country oh california there was yeah. a movement for california to be independent right. calexit you see it in in la there, right. there's a there is the flags and signs yeah but i mean this <laughs> this starting from from silicon yes. valley itself because yes. of its ability to solve problems all the world's problems yeah. um yeah. Uh, through an app which is is kind of is memorably parodied in the in the tv series <laughs> silicon valley um but the the, the, it was really brought home to me in Davos because there was so much about artificial intelligence. Yeah. 
and you know the advances that you can see now happening are you know remarkable machine learning um the way that so many things are going to be automated and, and the way that robots are capable of doing lots and lots of things now uh, and of course that raises lots of questions you know that, that's profoundly uh, disconcerting to someone who's maybe of a certain age and is working in a factory or or so on mm-hmm. now at davos what was interesting is there was lots of people saying well we've got to have a frank discussion about what this means for the workforce and i remember thinking well that's that's good but what next because mm-hmm. you can't just have a frank discussion and then you have some people saying yeah we need to do some retra- retraining and you kind of think well, this is not going to address these kinds of issues there's got to be a bit more uh much something much more substantive yeah. um not just from a communications perspective but from an operational perspective if people are serious about not leaving people behind i, I couldn't agree with you more i couldn't agree with you more and I think this is another area that we, I would certainly welcome, and I think would be very welcome, is to start to see more leadership from not just tech brands, but also who, people who are going to be big users, so that local government, healthcare, educational environments. I mean, for example, you know, I have very elderly parents, and they have, they're very disabled, and they live in their own home, and they have living carers. Mm-hmm. And like many people in my, of my in my situation you know this is a very difficult balance you know do you have your family living at home in extremely expensive sometimes quite fragile care arrangements do you move them into some called they move into a residential care home and you read all these sort of horror stories the reality is we we have artificial intelligence robots and so forth can help us potentially really help with some of these things Uh and that it not by taking away jobs of people that already have them but by by actually helping society to solve problems that it desperately, desperately needs to solve. Mm. Now, we, we have to get, we have to have a frank conversation to the extent that people will listen to that. Uh, but, but I think there's a sensitivity required uh, mm. to understand you can't, having a frank conversation with people saying, oh, by the way, none of you will have jobs in 20 years. Yeah. I mean, that's not going to, nobody's going to listen to that. Mm. No wonder people want to believe fake facts yeah. if that's the alternative. Yeah. You know, but if 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 brands and organisations and technology companies, and also as I say, big sort of people who own a lot of these problems, like local health authorities and, and so forth, are, are brave enough to start that discussion and to make that a much more open discussion, so it's not being done in boardrooms, it's being much more holistically discussed about you know what's going to be the effect on a community, what could the benefits be. I think there will be a really good thing mm. because we, we there are enormous upsides to this. Yeah. But you're quite right. I think that you know we have to be re- recognised that if all we do is say, oh, by the way, we're on the right side and you're on the wrong side, bye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ha, ha. I mean, you know, this is what makes people pick up metaphorical pitchforks. Yeah. And it has done for thousands of years. <laughs> yeah, no question. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think that's that kind of attitude that, you know, this is progress and anything else is just getting in the way of progress. Yeah, yeah. It's far too blunt. Yeah, it's too blunt. It's also blunt. not true for a lot of people. It's, true. it's arrogant, I think. Yeah. And, yeah, probably needs a little rethink. It'll be interesting to see the Super Bowl ads, going back to your point mm. about uh, what kind of tone of communication mm. we're going to see from brands. You know, if we see a lot of rusted out <laughs> shells of factories yeah. and then 
you know, gleaming Chrysler driving through. I think, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it won't. Maybe we'll, we'll once again see advertising being completely impervious to the real world, um, which might come as a relief, actually. But who knows? Uh, well, it's always played a bit of that role, hasn't it? Mm. You know, advertising is entertainment. And, you know, sometimes that might be quite welcome. Yeah, escapism. <laughs> yes, yes a welcome, absolutely. A welcome escape, perhaps. Excellent. Well, Sally, thank you so much. I feel like we got through a lot today. <laughs> There's a lot welcome. to discuss. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you as well. Um, and we'll get you back on the show sometime soon when Look you're in the country. <laughs> um, thanks, as always, to our production partner, Marketeers, and um, a big thank you to our sponsor, March. Um, you can find the Echo Chamber on our website on your podcast player of choice, and on iTunes. And if you are using iTunes, I, it would be cool, very, very much appreciated if you could leave us a review, um, a positive review, that is. If you plan on leaving a negative review, then um, it would be perhaps less appreciated. Uh, and you can get in touch with us, as usual, on all the usual channels, Twitter, Facebook, email, and so on. We'll be back again next week. Thanks very much. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers.